This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. On behalf of our audience, I would like to interrupt a regular programming to express my deepest sympathy and concern to our brothers and sisters in Japan. You may have noticed how I issued this episode later than usual. It was already recorded since yesterday, but the events of March the 11th prompted me to add this. As you may have already heard from the news, a Category 8.9 earthquake has hit northern Japan, and it is too soon to know the extent of the damages and casualties. So that you know, this earthquake, according to experts, was 1,000 times more powerful than the 2010 Haitian earthquake. Tsunamis have triggered waves that have caused even more damage. As if this wasn't enough, a nuclear power plant may be venting radioactive vapor. Surging radiation levels of 1,000 times more than normal have caused an evacuation of 3,000 people near the Fukushima 
Daiichi nuclear power plant, making it the first ever state of emergency declared at a nuclear plant in Japan. One last thing before we proceed to our normal programming. Last Saturday, I conducted a lecture at an organization called Tucson Awake and Aware. This morning, I received a few emails from people saying that I emphatically said during that lecture on March the 5th that March 11th will be the next significant date. I've included the following audio, which is a preview to this presentation. I will make it available in its entirety shortly. Here's the preview. Do you have a question back there? Yeah, I have two questions, actually. The first question I'd like to say is, uh, well, what's your opinion of what's going to happen in, say, 2012 in this quote-unquote event that I, I would agree with you. If you read the uh, Xerox document that's contained in Bill Cooper's book, he talks about the environment, and then ultimately the ultimate thing that's going to usher in the government is going to be a threat from outer space. Mm -hmm. What do you think that threat from outer space is going to be? What's your just instinctual opinion? Let me preface the question with another, <clears throat> with that, an answer. I, I think that if something's going to happen, it might be this year, 2011. I want to know if any of you, and if you don't, you're going to, what I'm about to tell you, you're going to do it from here on. Any of you look at your clock and your computer and always look when it's 11? Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Even my wife, who doesn't listen to my show, we were talking in the kitchen the other day, and she looked, like she goes, oh my God. I looked at the dishwasher and it said 11, the moment I looked. I asked uh, Stuart Swerdlow, one of my, my, my guests, what is up with this 11, 11 all the time? And he said that it's part of the programming. 11 means a beginning for something, 9-11. What happened uh, this year, one in one eleven of this year, it's when the Tunisian revolt started. Okay? What happened in 2011? It's when uh, uh, Hosni Mubarak in Egypt left the country. And now it's a domino taking place. The next big date I hear, and I'm, I don't deal with predictions, folks, so don't quote me, but the next date is 3-11. Watch for that date. And the other one is 11-11 of this year, those dates. Now, to answer the question of what I think might happen, it's, it's very unpredictable. These people, they have a script and they follow it. They're very, very patient. What happened to the economy in 2004 to 2008, that was all engineered. Just putting the interest rates so low, it's almost like giving a kid in a candy store all the stuff so they could come and eat it. But it was all engineered. During my communication with one of my friends in Japan, this person asked me what I thought of all of this. The first thing that came to mind was how the last prime minister stepped down when he was pushing legislation to expel the United States military from Japan. The U.S. military and Navy were ready to act immediately after the earthquake occurred. One piece of information that hasn't been made public in the last week is the resignation of its foreign minister. She also said that on Wednesday, she walked in Yokosuka near the Yokota base, and huge U.S. Navy ships were speeding up north. She says she even asked a friend if that was usual as she lives there. She was also very surprised to see the ships leaving such a hurry. She says, so yes, now the United States will keep Japan, quote-unquote, safe forever. We can't discount any possibility. Our thoughts are with everyone in Japan. And now we return to our regular programming. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. 
Without you, tonight's show would not have been possible. Tonight, we fulfill the wish by so many of you who have been requesting an interview with one of the Disclosure Project witnesses. After a long period in seclusion, literally, tonight's special guest is Dr. Carol Rawson. Dr. Rawson and her husband have been threatened and have even been the victims of physical violence for some time. Dr. Rawson and I have been in communication for quite some time, but it wasn't until after her appearance at the 2011 International UFO Congress that she decided to come forward with this interview. I am honored and privileged to have her on the show tonight. We'll discuss her life and what has transpired since her participation on Dr. Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project in 2001. We'll also discuss the Outer Space Security and Development Treaty of 2011, which is what Dr. Von Braun had requested and instructed her to do when they met in 1974. For more information about that treaty, visit her website at peaceinspace.com. I had the pleasure of meeting Dr. Rosen at the International UFO Congress in Arizona, where I was able to capture this interview on video as well. You can also watch it by visiting our website, veritasshow.com, and clicking on the Veritas TV link. To listen or watch tonight's full interview and all our interviews, become a member. You'll receive instant access to all of our material. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. So if you've been listening to the first segment of the show for some time, don't you think it's time to listen to the entire show and support our work? I hope you do. Remember, no sponsorship means no censorship. Just visit our website, veritasshow.com, click on the subscribe link and take Veritas with you. And you can now download the latest show by the iTunes link. That simple. And if you're new to the show and are overwhelmed by the number of episodes, then purchase the 8GB metal case USB drive with Seasons 1 or 2. They both come with bonus material that you won't get anywhere else. Go to the Veritas store for more information. And I have a few things to share with you. First, I want to thank Marjorie for her invitation to the Tucson Awake and Aware meeting. I conducted a three-hour lecture and we discussed so many topics and the questions were outstanding. I filmed the entire presentation and I'll be uploading it in the near future. This is the first time I've ever filmed any of my presentations. Judging by the response from the audience, I think you're going to like it. It was almost like dealing with so many parapolitical research topics all at once. Thanks again for the invitation and to all of you who attended. And we continue uploading interviews conducted at the 2011 International UFO Congress. What's new? Short interviews with uh, Bob Dean, A.J. Givard, Don Schmidt, Jim Marsh, and a lot more coming up. So visit Veritas TV, where you can also watch tonight's show on video. I will continue uploading more material periodically. And if you are a forum member, go to the forum. I will share with you how I've been saving about 20 to 25% on gas for the past five years. I don't know why I missed sharing this very inexpensive way to save gas with you. I guess I was just doing it as a habit. But now that 
gas prices are creeping up again, I remembered why I started doing this in the first place. Some of you may know what I'm referring to. If not, head to the forum and find out. And you know I'm always talking about MMS. Well, I receive testimonials all the time. But this time, I decided to share this one with you. Quote, Mel, thank you very much for promoting MMS. Last year, I had a bad accident in my furniture shop that landed me in the hospital for four days. While in the hospital, I contracted a very bad staph infection, which almost caused me to lose my finger and more. I had to take so many antibiotics that my entire system went out of balance for the whole year of 2010. I was suffering from a terrible skin rash, allergies, and terrible joint pain, none of which I had ever experienced before. I was getting very depressed over my health situation. I was listening to one of your great shows when you talked about using MMS for yourself. I researched it and decided to give it a try. After one week of using MMS, all of my problems were gone. I feel as if my life was given back to me. God bless Jim Humble and you, Mel. My whole hospital experience cost me $80,000 and left me broke. It took me $40 of MMS to fix the problem. Shame on the FDA. Brian. Well, Brian, I'm glad to hear this. Over a year ago, my uncle went to the hospital and died of a staph infection, which is totally unrelated to the condition from which he was admitted. His son is a doctor and no one could do anything. He died from complications from that staph infection at a very respected hospital in Florida. How do you think they would have reacted if I had told all the doctors, can you please try MMS? Listen to Jim Humble's interview if you're curious. And if you need to get in touch with me, just go to our website and click on the contact button and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready for aerospace consultant Dr. Carol Rosen. Her life and what has transpired in the past 10 years since her participation as a witness during Dr. Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project. Find out about a treaty she developed with her colleagues, including astronaut Dr. Edgar Mitchell, to keep space free of weapons. And here's a replay from Dr. Rosen's speech at the 2001 Disclosure Project. Good morning, my name is Carol Rosen. In 1974, after being a sixth grade school teacher, I was introduced to the late Dr. Werner von Braun in the US, the father of rocketry. In my first meeting with him during that first three and a half hours, he said to me, Carol, you will stop the weaponization of space. And I said, uh, you know, teachers don't stop until June. He said, no, you have to understand, this is February and we have to prevent the weaponization of space because there is a lie being told to everyone that the weaponization of space is now first being based upon the evil empire, the Russians. There are many enemies, he said, against whom we're going to build this space-based weapon system. The first of whom was the Russians, which was existing at that time. Then there would be terrorists, then there would be third world countries, now we call them rogue nations or nations of concern. Then there would be asteroids, and then he would repeat to me over and over, and the last card, the last card, the last card would be the extraterrestrial threat. 
Well, at the time, I kind of laughed when he said asteroids, and when he said extraterrestrials, I knew I wasn't going to deal with that subject. And now we hear on the news just today, this week, that they've slid in another enemy. Only this time we're going to protect our satellites. In other words, we have to have some reason to spend these trillions to waste these dollars on a space-based weapon system, and they're all lies. This is a system, he told me, that would never protect anyone. Even back then, he talked about suitcase bombs. He talked about chemical, viral, bacterial, bat biological warfare that these space-based weapons would never protect us against. And then he told me that, in fact, if you travel around the world, which I did after he died in 1977, I met with people in over 100 countries who were friends. They didn't want to build space-based weapons. I became a space and missile defense consultant. And I worked with people around the world. I became a, an advisor to the People's Republic of China. They don't want to build a space-based weapon system. And he told me back then that they didn't. He said, go to Russia. They're considered to be the enemy. I got on a plane by myself. When I got to Russia, I had a list of people that I had read out of the newspaper. Chernenko was in office then. He was the only one I didn't get a chance to meet. They introduced me to everyone when I got there. And when I got back, I said, oh my Lord, this man is telling the truth. There are, is no threat. And I've been waiting until this day for 27 years. And I'm expecting the spin to happen because he also explained to me that in the, as a military strategist, as a person who worked on the MX missile, which I did later, he said, you will find that there is going to be a spin to find some enemy against whom we have to build space-based weapons. And now we should expect the spin because he said part of the formula for the intelligence community is if they might have a weapon, then we have to consider that they do have these weapons. So now they do have these weapons, so now we have to build these weapon systems. And that's the formula, except that it's all based on a lie. And we have witnesses here today that have shown you that these extraterrestrial beings, that these craft that have come here are now not UFOs, they're identified flying objects. And we know that they have beings in them. And we have witnesses here who have told you that they can shut down our missile silos. They can stop a rocket going into space that's a test. We have witnesses here who have worked in the classified departments who have the courage to come forward here to support what Werner von Braun told me back in 1974 to 77. And I will testify before the Congress that when I founded the Institute for Security and Cooperation in Outer Space, which I shut down a few years ago because I didn't believe we had a chance with this huge, integrated around the world, complex weapon system, that we had any chance at all of transforming that war industry into a space industry that could provide benefits like Dr. Greer has said of global warming, we can end that situation of that problem. We can end the energy crisis. We can build now non-polluting technologies. Werner von Braun used to tell me that we could have cars back then that w drove around off the ground. He described this to me on beams so that we have no pollution on this planet. And we can solve the problems of the people that are urgent and potential and the other animals and the other cultures on Earth and in space. And we can end the arms race without dislocating the industry jobs, without disrupting the economy, by transforming, Werner von Braun told me, the war industry into a global cooperative space industry that will provide, he said, finally, more jobs and profits on this planet than during any hot or cold wartime, 
more products and services that can be applied directly to solving the problems of this planet. And we can have a whole planet now that lives on in peace on Earth with all the cultures on Earth and with all the extraterrestrial cultures in space. And these are words that Bernard von Braun told me in 1974. And I will testify before the Congress under oath about everything I have said and more. Thank you. This is Dr. Stephen Greer, and you're listening to The Veritas Show. I'm Bill Fambergas from The Veritas Show, and this will be a very exclusive interview with somebody I've been in touch with for quite some time, and somebody, someone very, very important to all of us. And I'm privileged that she, is, she has chosen Veritas to be the venue where she will be saying perhaps things that she has not shared with the world before. Uh, finally, she found the time and the place to, to release this information. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce Dr. Carol Rossen. Hello, Carol. Thank you, Mel. My pleasure. Thank you for being with us. And for the viewers and listeners who may not know who you are, I really doubt it because when the Disclosure Project came out in May of 2001, I believe the number from Dr. Greer was over one billion people have watched wow. the Disclosure Project. It has broken any record when it comes to, to release of, of this kind of information. But why don't you give us the background of yourself, who you are, and how you got to be where you are. Well, I sure didn't mean to be working in anything related to the off-planet culture UFO ET issue, but I now believe it's the most important issue of our time. And I think your show is one of the most important issues, and that's why I'm doing this exclusive with you. Um, you've been projecting truth, and that's what I'm going to talk about and what this is about. Um, and I've been hiding out for the last couple of years, which is why you haven't seen me. It's because um, of the threats. Um, my husband and I have been lied to, lied about, betrayed, blackmailed, threatened. Um, we've lost everything. Uh, we've had a really terrible experience, and it's mainly for the purpose of shutting people like us up from telling the truth. Um, my husband was the one who introduced the Disclosure Project, and at the end, he's the one who said, when a journalist asked Stephen if uh, he said, if only one of these witnesses is telling a lie, then it discredits everybody. And my husband jumped up and said, no, if only one is telling the truth. And with millions of people involved in this issue now, of course, we are in touch, we're in contact, people have met, worked with extraterrestrial beings, and uh, I've been working with a lot of people, which I'm going to talk about today, um, some incredible people that have put together the first treaty ever. And that's what I'm going to present to you. And I will tell you about my background, too. But this treaty is what's really important. It's the Outer Space 
Security and Development Treaty of 2011. And this treaty has been co-authored, this first draft, by Dr. Edgar Mitchell, the sixth man on the moon who founded the Institute of Noetic Sciences, the first astronaut, as you know, who's alive now, that's gone really public with the reality that we are in touch with the off-planet cultures. And um, amazing people, uh, um, Dr. Scott Jones, who has worked in intelligence for years in the military-industrial complex revolving door game, um, he has now been working for peace, has his own website, and is doing amazing peace projects. What a long way these people have come, especially Scott, too, um, who helped draft this treaty. Uh, Commander Will Miller, who was the advisor to Stephen Greer in the Disclosure Project, the military advisor, and has advised many other people, too. He works with Leslie Kane, who has a best-selling book out now, and just major people that he works with. And he's in Rotary Club, so he reaches a lot of civic organizations, uh, people to do major activities for the planet. And um, a man named Abe Krieger, most people in our community don't know of him. He worked at Boeing on strategic defense initiative contracts. He was an executive at Boeing. He's retired now. And he also helped draft this treaty and a couple of others that went over it with us, including my husband, John Seifer, that I mentioned, this retired actor, who is, in fact, also a scholar and an editor, and he helped us edit this and work on the whole process of building this treaty. Um, I just want to mention before I go into it that it is the first treaty ever to acknowledge the cosmic cultures. Its purpose is to ban space-based weapons, but it includes, as parties to the treaty, a very first, not only acknowledging the cosmic cultures as parties to the treaty, but the indigenous nations, which I especially feel, and we all do, have been left out of the process of decision-making on both the national and global scale all over the world. So this is very exciting, and it's all aimed um, at having people rise to a higher level than dealing with the mess that we're in on the planet, I think there's nobody that could really disagree with this treaty. Um, people may be skeptical that it could get signed, but I know it can be. Um, we were very close to getting one signed when we got uh, infiltrated in Ecuador. That's another whole story I'll go into um, by world leaders down there. But now we're going to go for something else. We're going to go for nine world, treaters, world leaders to sign it. That's all we need um, to make this a legal UN treaty. So I will go into the details of that. But how did I get here? Um, this is just a ridiculous story. I was a sixth grade school teacher. Um, I was into child psychology. That's really what I'm best at is working with children, which is probably why I was doing pretty well in the military industrial complex. It's a very uh, kind of low level sometimes. And, and not because people are too stupid, although I asked Ed Mitchell one time, why, what was I doing wrong that people were not supporting a bill in a treaty to ban weapons from space? Am I not articulating this well enough or what? And he said, no, actually, he's been, I, he said to me, I've been studying consciousness for all these decades. And the fact is the human species is stupid and he said I could quote him on that so in a way I kind of think it's true but I think we've just been playing a very old game and there hasn't been a scenario big enough to replace the war game that 
the United States especially is an aggressive nature in, sorry, um, and the rest of the world is suffering from, and of course it's not just the U.S., there are people that really believe we need more weapons and to fight each other to achieve peace. The logic of that makes absolutely no sense at all when you're talking about truth, but this is where we've been on this planet. So again, this treaty is designed to raise people above the conversation that's been going on on the planet to a place that everybody can agree to. And I think it's the most exciting document I've ever seen and I've been studying this work for so long. So from being a school teacher um, who launched her classroom into outer space, I've worked in a very low socioeconomic area in Arlandria, Virginia. and. One day, my students, who had really hurt another teacher, and they were really badly disturbed kids. Uh, a lot of them were going to detention centers for things they were doing. They were walking around with pen knives, and this was back in the late, mid to late 60s that I started this school teaching. And these kids just wanted to leave Earth. They were, uh, I said, how do you want to learn? I mean, this is what I have to teach you. and. One of them said, let's get the off of the planet. And I said, okay. So we set up our classroom like a spaceship. I'm working on this curriculum now for teachers, actually, because it's so much fun and it works. And we sat in our chairs and leaned back and started watching videos of the world. And the students were just enthralled that there were places outside of their community, that we could live with nature. We saw a lot of nature movies, a lot of movies about nutrition, about, and of course these are huge problems now, health, nutrition, nature, it's disappearing on this planet. So in those days, this was a vision, and the vision that we had to get off of Earth is what attracted Fairchild Industries. We set up a classroom that looked like a space habitat. In fact, when you walked, even if you were the principal and you walked in the room, you were decontaminated with a hairdryer because you were a UFO. And, oh, I just realized it went all the way back to that. And so that's how our classroom was. And someone at Fairchild called. They were looking for a woman to be pushed up the corporate ranks of industry. These were the days of EEOC, equal opportunity. And they needed a woman. So I was just called up and I thought, wow, what a great field trip this would be for my kids. And I had only been in a chocolate bar factory and a beer factory on a field trip at that point. And I went there and I met with these executives and they took me in to meet Werner von Braun the father of rocketry, that we call him that in the United States anyway, how and the German scientist. You? How did he find you? There was a newspaper article that went out, and it had this a student with a stethoscope on someone's back, it should have been on the front, taking what was supposed to be the heartbeat. And the article title says, Students Studying on Spaceship Earth. And it failed to say that it was a classroom. It was ridiculous. But, and that's why I say this whole thing was ridiculous, actually. But the article didn't say it was a classroom, and people started, teachers, communicating with Fairchild, who was getting ready to launch a satellite called the ATS-6, the Application Technology Satellite, the sixth in a series. It was the largest satellite in existence at the time. And it was an educational satellite, and most of us never knew what a satellite was in those days. I mean, there weren't very many then. And so teachers were calling Fairchild saying, can I launch my class into space? Can I become a pen pal with the kids that went up into this classroom? 
And Fairchild actually called me saying, what are you telling people? That, you know, you're in space and you're on a satellite? And I said, no, I didn't tell them anything. One of the parents sent somebody in from the media because they thought there was a fun unit for the local press, and the, it just went viral, this article. So teachers across the country started calling Fairchild, and that's why they called me because they were seriously looking for a woman. Can you imagine a woman executive coming out of the sixth grade school teacher classroom? And that's how I ended up going up there. They wanted to interview me, and they said, would you come up? We'll tell you all about it. And I said, well, yeah, can I bring my kids one day? And they said, oh, sure, you know, but come up and meet us first. And that I didn't know it was for an interview at first. And after I met, first I met two executives in a restaurant. This is what year? Um, 74, early 74. And then they took me up to the company. And as they started to take me on a tour of Fairchild, somebody said, Werner's ready for her. And I, I didn't know he was there. At that time, he had become vice president of Fairchild Industries in the uh, Space and Electronics Division. And so I was brought in for a few minutes meeting with him that lasted for, I'd say, about two and a half hours. And he explained to me right at the beginning that he was dying of cancer. For those who don't know, if anybody out there doesn't know who Dr. Werner von Braun was, he was the father of modern rocketry. Yes. In fact, he was in charge of the Apollo program that sent rockets to the moon. And he also is... I think the greatest space visionary of our time. Many people have told me that, that I was very fortunate to work with him. Other people thought he was an evil Nazi, which he wasn't. I'll tell that reason why I've learned that, too. And, yes, um, he was just amazing. I mean, I sat down with him, and I knew he was a German, which to me meant Nazi because my father, growing up, would never buy a German car. I mean, that's about as much as I knew. I was really naive about politics at the time and anything like this. So, But I couldn't talk when I met him. He was mesmerizing. Um, his eyes were so intense. I mean, there's a man that thinks he might drop dead any minute. And he was very ill. He had tubes coming out of him. And he was scribbling, by the way, on a piece of paper the whole time we were talking. When you met him, he was already ill? Yes, oh yes. He had been given three to six weeks to live, and he was cleaning out his office. And that's what I was told when I went in to meet him. And while I was talking with him, first thing he said was, look, Carol, I couldn't teach 37 kids in a classroom any more than you could probably send rockets to the moon, so let's get over whatever it is and let's just have a conversation here because I have something very important to discuss with you. And then he started tapping on the desk, and he said, you will come to Fairchild, you will be here within three weeks, and you will not listen to the doctor's reports if they say I'm going to die in three or six weeks or ten weeks, whatever. I'm going to stay alive to teach you what the real game is that you've been doing in pretend in your classroom. And I remember saying something to him like, I'm coming to Fairchild, you mean to work? Yes, you'll be here in three weeks. And I said, no, no. Teach, this is February. Teachers don't quit until June, and then we go on vacation or we take courses. And he said, no. And then he started talking. And it was the most extraordinary meeting I've ever had. I mean, that anybody could ever have, really, when you have the man who sent rockets to the moon. <clears throat> and he started talking about Disney movies that he had produced with a vision to Mars and 
the Mars rover and going to the moon and all of that kind of thing to kind of interest me in the student part of it. He thought they would like these movies. But then he said, we need to create a youth program that's going to be motivational for youth, minorities, and women. And in fact, we did, by the way, create a film series called It's Your Turn. And it was about It's Your Turn to take part in the development of science and technology projects, to steer history, to make sure this technology gets applied to solving problems on the planet of human needs, of the environment, of energy, of the animals, of nature, all of the above. Because he obviously then explained to me too that he had worked under Hitler and what was obvious was is that he knew about the war scenes and this was not what a rocket scientist ever wanted to work on. None of that team did. They were not warriors but they had to have their jobs or they would have been bumped off and erased or their, ba- their families were threatened. I heard this whole story. So he did his job and then as soon as they can, could, he helped plan the escape to get out of Pinamunda out of Germany working with Hitler. Some went to Russia of these scientists, some went, came to the United States, and they again in the United States had to work on more weapons. So I heard this whole story while I was sitting there, and then of course over the next three and a half years I heard more bits and pieces of it. And what really was mind-blowing though was the vision that he had and that he implanted in me um, because although I was in a classroom that was a space habitat, supposedly, with learning centers that covered every subject area. Um, I mean, we were growing alfalfa to show that you could grow food, you know, and it was amazing in the classroom. What you can do in outer space is even more amazing, and that's where we are today. The decisions are being made, and it's an urgent situation about what we're going to do in space, how we're going to travel, where, who's going to get the information, what kind of technology is going to be put up there, and most important of all, is it going to be applied to expanding wars, or is it going to be for peaceful purposes? And so his whole vision was about building things like, and this is going to sound far out, especially to people who think we shouldn't even have technology, and in a way they're right, because we have so many problems on the planet, why are we putting so much money into anything that isn't solving the problems directly? except that now what I've learned is it takes space-age technology and information to solve those problems. But what he would talk about are things like, he'd start with a car. He'd say, do you realize that cars one day can ride on beams and they won't need electricity? In fact, you may not even need a car, and you'll be able to just travel on these beams and you'll be off the ground. And then he'd go into, and you could have a space elevator. I used to talk about space elevators and things like this, and people would start to look at me like I was landing about this point, that I had come here from some other place. But he'd say, you could have space elevators to go up to your space hotel, and imagine what this hotel could be, because in the spa and in the hospital, the space hospital next door, you're, as an astronaut, your body grows a half an inch to an inch because you have no gravity keeping you down. Imagine what that would do for bone diseases and arthritis. And then he'd go on, so you could build space hospitals, space schools, hotels, laboratories, industries, farms. You could learn all about new techniques for agriculture. And he'd get so excited about it that it excited me. I mean, this was a reality. Or you see what's happening on the planet. You see these wars. And then he warned me, and what I had said in the Disclosure Project was a summary 
of how we could keep identifying enemies, except that it was all based on a lie. It was, they were not really enemies. We turned them into enemies because we are aggressively attacking them. Or notice the United States isn't fighting any wars on the United States land, right? So I started catching on to this war game and to the revolving door positions of these people. Here comes Von Brown to the States. He thinks that he's going to be able to work on peaceful exploration of outer space like the rocket scientists all wanted to do. No, they get tied into another weapons program at first until he got to Apollo. And I started meeting people through him. He introduced me first to a chamber of commerce, and he said, because this is all about profits in one way or another, and I didn't even know what a chamber of commerce was at the time, now suddenly I evolve into the position of being vice president of the Montgomery County Chamber of Commerce, which was the third largest in the country. On my table sat Pepsi, IBM, a lot of big companies. Um, seven Up, it was Seven Up, not Pepsi, just a bunch of different companies. And um, these people were about how to sell, how to market. It was all about public relations. And I learned a little bit about public relations actually from Timothy Leary, who it turns out was one of Von Braun's friends. And back in the 60s, when I was a school teacher, somebody took me in to meet Timothy in the 60s who put a little piece of paper on my tongue when he first met me. He said, someone who brought him in and said, oh, this is a school teacher, Carol Rosen. And he said, oh, look at the cute little school teacher. And he put these, put this little paper on your tongue. And I did, and three days later... What was that, LSD? LSD, after an enormous LSD trip, which was amazing because there were also some pretty well-known people in that house doing this. There were people outside running around naked with teepees and painted faces and flowers in their hair. It was an amazing scene. And I was taught how to see through a wall, how to look at my body and see my circulatory system, my bone structure, my skeletal system. It was just an amazing experience. I could watch the trees, and trees would talk to me and introduce themselves, their mother and father and grandfathers, and talk about how they were being called, cut down. And um, I had an amazing experience with Timothy, but Timothy's whole thing was, if you said, what's the most important thing in the world, Timothy, he would say PR, public relations. And Von Braun, it turns out, was a, a public relations hound because he was trying to get the vision out of what could be versus what is and is going to be if we don't ban space-based weapons, if we don't outlaw them, because he who was building the V2 and these horrible horrible weapon systems under Hitler, and then coming to the States to consult on similar kinds of programs, uh, that is not what they, these scientists wanted, especially Von Braun. So his idea was that if we kept presenting a positive vision, that people would catch on to it, except they weren't, and now he was going to die. So his idea was, which he thought was very funny, was that he would hire me, that the, he would get the industry to hire me. I would come in and become an executive in the aerospace company, which needed a woman executive. And his idea was, he said to me, well, nobody is going to close the door on you. You're a woman, and they don't close his chivalry. So he said, this is who has to do it. It has to be you. You have to go out and give, present this vision. You have to prevent the weaponization of space, and you have to do it. This is what you have to do. And there was something about the way he said it with this intensity that... The last thing I would ever wanted to do was, I didn't even know what an activist was. 
was start a movement. And after he died, I didn't know what to do, so I went to the United Nations because I thought, well, this is a peace group. This is an organization about world peace. So I went up to New York, and I went to this huge library, and there were all these speeches and papers and books. It was unbelievable about peace. And I said to somebody, how come you haven't achieved peace here yet? All these people from different countries in these buildings. I mean, it's an amazing place. And somebody said to me, well, you know, they, we give these speeches, but nobody's listening. And I said, well, you have treaties. You have treaties. Yeah, there are 40,000 treaties right now, by the way, in the depository at the United Nations. And the largest research and development program of our time is what? the space-based weapons program, only they don't call it that, of course. They say, oh, no, it's only ground-based, just, you know, because it is, until they get it all into space. Or they'll say, oh, it's already in space, space space-based weapons, so forget about it, you can't stop it. I mean, you get all these arguments. And the people at the UN are working on every issue, not just peace. They're working on the starving people, the sick people, the earth changes, that are made, I and mean, there are, I heard that there are from people at the UN, if this is true, there are 500 million orphans on the planet. Could that be? And people are still going out having babies? Sorry, this is just ridiculous to me, too. And so I started after Von Braun died to really get into this. And um, in the UN, I found an organization called the International Association of Educators for World Peace, IAEWP. And I called them, and it turned out Conrad Dannenberg, one of the German scientists that came here with von Braun from Pinamunda, is on their board. It's a rather scholarly board of academia types at that time. So now I go down to Huntsville to meet this board, and I walk in, and here comes Conrad Dannenberg, who knows that I'm there because I didn't know what hat to wear. I quit the industry in the war room, it's called this big conference room called the War Room, when they had charts up on the wall where they were identifying the next enemies against whom they could possibly build space-based weapons. And I had, in that meeting, I sat up and raised my hand, the only woman in the room, and said, could somebody tell me again why we're going to identify all these people as a possibility for building space-based weapons? Of course, they could see in the future that's where we're headed. They went over my question as though I had not asked it. I was the invisible. And so I asked it again. And still, kind of nobody moved. And I asked it again. And at that point, I stood up and I said, consider this my 60-day resignation. I want pay. I want And I walked out. And that's when I went up to the UN. Because I could see there was no stopping it from that kind of question. So I went down, I became the national chancellor of the United States for the International Association of Educators for Peace. I just called the man who founded it, Dr. Charles Merchea, before I came to this UFO con- International UFO Congress of 2011 here in Phoenix. Um, and this is February now, right? And um, he is still alive. Many of the people that I called before I came here had already passed on. And he started talking about all the projects they're doing for peace. They're just wonderful. And was very supportive. And he also read the treaty and said, you know, we'll help promote that around the world. Um, But I still had to go on. I had to focus on the space issue. So I went to Vienna, Austria. 
to the second special session of the UN of the Peaceful Uses and Exploration of Outer Space meeting in 1982. And there, um, I had the title of National Chancellor of this educator's organization, because I'm an educator. And I brought about somewhere between 50 and 100 people came in at any one time using this IEW, because it was an NGO, IEWP title, so that they could get into the NGO, the national, or the um, non-governmental organization meeting that runs parallel to these giant General Assembly meetings at the UN in Vienna. And I presented along with a lot of people to the NGOs, and it kind of started a movement of people talking about space weapons, space-based weapons that we need to ban. And I found one other very small organization that was kind of focused on that issue, but nobody wanted to do a bill or a treaty. They were mostly protesting it, which was good to do. But I ended up founding the Institute for Security and Cooperation in Outer Space. I needed a hat so that I had a title because everybody was so title-oriented then with letterheads. and So I did it. And suddenly I was in a building with a lady named Connie Van Prate who became my partner in this, and she's now working at NASA. She has been for some time in and out of NASA now because she has children. Um, and she's been working on the Cosmonaut Organization and doing a lot of projects for them. And a guy named um, Tom Kremens came in he was actually looking for the Union of Concerned Scientists, but we grabbed him and said, no, you need to stay with us, because he had written a report called Opening Pandora's Box about the space weapons program. And we started an institute with a secretary friend named Judy Schnidman, and then people started coming to want to work with us to, on a, trying to get a bill and a treaty introduced, a bill first, actually. And um, we had to go to a bigger building, bigger building. We finally ended up on Logan Circle in a three-story building that suddenly was filled with people and we had to raise money for everybody and we were cranking out reports on way ahead of our time on space junk, on space cooperation, on all the different weapon systems we could see that were ground-based starting to build up to the war in space scenario where it wouldn't be war in space, it would be war technology and aimed at war on Earth and aimed into space as well, which at that time we weren't dealing with the UFO issue. In fact, if anybody ever came in saying, I want to come and work here and I love the idea of UFOs and ETs and all, I would have said no um, because I thought people were crazy until I got visited and then until I got, I met Stephen Greer, who got me involved in the Disclosure Project. Let, let's go back in chronology, if we could, for a moment. And just a quick parenthesis. Did mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Von Braun, did he ever mention to you that Hitler may not have committed suicide after all? No, he didn't. Um, he, the only thing we really talked about with Hitler was, and he would cry when he'd talk about it, is what they had to do for him. And he talked about things like, when he saw the workers that he had to kind of be in charge of building these weapon systems. He would fight to get them free time and meals and try to get them to not have to be working like they were being, were having to work overtime, like sometimes 12-hour days, he said. And he would work to try to protect them because he couldn't stand watch. And he would cry over the things like that that he knew that he had to be involved in with Hitler. But we didn't talk about how he died or anything like that. Um, I don't think he really cared at that point. I think he just really wanted to get out of there. 
and they he helped plan the escape. Uh, people don't know this, but his scientist friends told me that von Braun would be hiding out, making VIP signs to put on their cars with magic markers to make them look official, because if there was any ink smudged, one of them told me they would get caught, and they were determined to drive out with their families if they had to put them in the trunk of their car. So these are the things they were working on for years to try to get out of there. And then, of course, finally they got to get out. Um, so By a paperclip. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Project paperclip. Yeah. Okay. And uh, I don't know that they knew it had a name at the time. Mm-hmm. They were just trying to move and maneuver and decide. And I think Russia got much more of the scientists than we did. I remember him telling me about that. And it was a really hard decision where to go, what to do. But they were desperate. And they were smiling all the time because that's how we are in the aerospace. I have a picture of myself hugging an A-10 bomber airplane model, smiling, I'm laughing. Uh, I mean... <laughs> It's kind of what you do as part of the game. It doesn't mean you're happy doing it, like a lot of people have said. That's just a joke that anybody would believe such a thing. Although, as my husband used to say to me, there are people who love blood and guts. That's why there's so many horror films, and people are attracted to the disasters like that. There are people that actually enjoy pulling the wings off of butterflies, I mean, you know, and lightning bugs, and hurting animals and things. I mean... That's how part of the human species is. It's a very, very low-level consciousness in this species. It's unfortunate, but if you go to Hollywood to try to finance a movie, unless it's uh, flesh, blood, and uh, uh, if it leads, if it bleeds, it leads. If it's enlightenment, if it's something that's going to help humanity, they don't get funding. Very interesting way to put it, and that's the truth too. I've been working with somebody lately who's one of the sons of the man who produced the Beatles. His name's Gregory Paul Martin, and I think it was George Martin who produced the Beatles. And he's working on a lot of different projects in Hollywood, one of which I've been consulting to for about three years, and I just met him in person. We've been doing it on the Internet. And he's moved to Hollywood at the moment. And we've had this conversation because if this movie that he's producing about outer space has anything to do with really ugly weapon systems and disasters, I don't want any more part of it. That vision is so negative and it's so imprinted children. And now industries are, speaking of children, some of these industries are taking children, they're paying for this, lining them up in front of computers, and have them working on virtual war games. That's how they say they're teaching them about computers. I mean, this is horrifying. And it stretches right into these kids then going and producing these horrible movies that you just described now. And that's the vision that we've been supporting coming out of the movie industry a lot. Uh, People tend to turn the channel when it's a good program. I was part of something, I started the World Entrepreneur Association to study scams and opportunities because I was always looking for ways to raise money for my institute. And at that time, multi-level marketing was in, which I don't particularly like, and there are only about five companies that made it for a long term anyway. But one of them was the People's Network, and they had all motivational speakers that were great. And it folded. People were not watching the positive news, the positive... It's incredible. We've been absolutely programmed to this war machine and to being afraid, this fear factor. 
and it's a deadly fear factor and it's now leading us into this technology that's mind control technology that's uh, psychotronic weapons that can, could, if they put these in space in geosynchronous orbits 22,300 miles above the earth in three spots in space <clears throat> that technology hits what they call the footprint hits the whole planet and those beams can control how you think how you act whether you're sick, whether you're well in a group as an individual, control your mind, how you think, how you act, if you're sick, if you're well. I mean, this is dreadful. Yeah, we have the preponderance of cell towers and cell phones, which yes. that's probably communicating, and those, those uh, radio waves are affecting each and everyone's body. Everybody, and it's in the walls. And I'm one of those people who have what Von Braun called an aptitude for electronical devices. I've been in theaters or conferences where they can't get the technology to work and I can walk up and actually see the circuits. And maybe it's from my old LSD days or something, you know, or ketamine or one of these other things that I experimented with. But it does open your mind. And so I can, I can sense sometimes the wires and the energy in a room or someone's specific energy And I wonder sometimes, are they being controlled? Is that a mind control thing that happened to them? Is that why they're acting so crazy? Or is it just television? Is it the ego? When I was visited by, I'm jumping around, I know, but when I, when I was visited by um, these extraterrestrial beings that came in through the wall, and there was another man in the room with me, a doctor. Now, to tell us more about that, how it began, oh. so that people who don't know the story. Oh, can. this is amazing. I was actually in Phoenix, where we are right now. We're just outside of Phoenix on an Indian reservation in a resort casino in this conference. But I was in a hotel in Phoenix at the People's Network, this television multi-level marketing meeting. And I was given a room. I was also there to give a speech to some group about the space issue. So they had given me a very nice suite. And um, a man who had been trying to get a hold of me for a long time, several weeks, and I thought, well, gee, maybe he's a fan of my husband because he's calling me obnoxiously and sometimes they want to meet an actor. And my husband is so not actor, he wouldn't play that fan role. And this I finally said, look, if you really want to talk to me that badly, you'll have to come to Phoenix, Arizona. I'm giving a speech. It's not far from L.A. where you live. I can't believe I did this. But I wanted him to get away from my house. And he came to Phoenix. And there, we went out to dinner with some friends of ours who are teetotalers, so I know they didn't slip me a tab or anything. And we came back to the hotel. There were no rooms in the hotel. So I said to this man, who's a very well-established doctor, as I find out later, a therapist, uh, look, there are no rooms. If you want to really meet with me, um, come on up to my room. And now it's midnight, and suddenly ETs come. I, I said to him, I don't want you to think that I'm crazy. And I was saying to myself, he's a famous therapist. He's going to have me committed after this. He doesn't really know me. But I said, there's somebody in the room. I can feel that somebody is in the room. And suddenly, this level-headed therapist started saying, oh, my God, somebody, I'm closing my eyes. I'm not going to look. And this is a, it's more elaborate than this. I'm summarizing it for uh, the listeners right now. But he went completely berserk he, in fear. And I am now looking at the being that came between us, um, who's maybe... 
four, four and a half, half feet high, I'm trying to guess because I was sitting down. I was leaning actually up against the bedboard. I was sitting against the bedboard. And this being came with these kind of round oval eyes. And I had the most loving experience I've ever had in my entire life. And this man next to me was having the most fearful one, which shows you the range of people's interpretations of this. And this meeting went on for an hour and a half with this being talking mostly to me saying he had to have this experience it turned out I didn't find out until the next day that he had come to talk to me about the fact that maybe uh, he was going to have to set up healing centers around the country and then around the world for people when the extraterrestrials land who might be jumping out of windows because people are going to be in such a state of fear so this being said to me he would have to experience this fear but and wouldn't remember a lot of what was going to be said now but I would remember all of it and I do and I really realize after this conference that I need to finally go back and write the story down and you were not under the influence of anything oh god no okay. no no this was just, in fact my friends I mentioned they were teetotalers literally they drank tea and so that's it you know, and I think one of them had a beer, and I don't drink alcohol. So, this was just an event that happened, and we were extremely straight, and it was the most a mind-boggling, mind-altering event that has changed my life. Um, I now went from being a total non-believer and thinking people were crazy who ever talked about the subject, or maybe they're just science fiction interests in their lives, but. Never would I believe this in a thousand years. And one of the things I was being told then was that they're coming in, sometimes they're meeting with two people or more than one because otherwise these certain people would not believe it. And I'm one of those people. I would not have ever believed this if there wasn't somebody in the room with me. No way. I would have thought somebody slipped a tab of acid to me. This is what year? Uh, I don't remember, but it was about a couple of years before the Disclosure Project. Okay. And this fellow, Robert Zanger, Dr. Zanger, who said I could mention his name to you now, he said that um, he can't remember the year either. So we've been trying to trace back when this People's Network meeting was and what hotel we were in, and we haven't been able to find it. It seems to be off the net. But it was before the Disclosure Project, because when I met Stephen Greer who was trying to talk me into testifying with Von Brown's, something about Von Brown's statements, and I didn't want to do it. He and his wife Emily took me to lunch, and I just so fell in love with both of them, and I trusted him. And you'll notice in the Disclosure Project, they put me way off to the side next to Danny Sheehan, so I'm kind of hiding from the photographers. In fact, I had the lights turned away from me. I was so not wanting to be involved in this issue at the time because there's such a huge ridicule factor and I had serious work to do and I wasn't taking it seriously until I had this experience and then met Greer and the witnesses. I mean, there's a mind-blowing experience if you've never had one um, with ETs or UFOs or you were skeptical, you can't be after you meet these witnesses unless you're really stupid. I mean, skepticism is good if you're trying to do your research, but if you at this point in history do not believe that we have been visited and are visited and that there's an enormous issue related to our very survival in this, then you either have to wake up or step aside and let the people who get it work on this issue and ban weapons from space and start to achieve peace on the planet, because I think most people can see now if they've got half a brain, we're going down 
as a human species. Do you think that if 9-11 had not happened, the Disclosure Project, which took place uh, May of 2001, would have snowballed and maybe we would have seen something? Definitely it was a distraction, but I think there was an intentional campaign too to make sure that it didn't go out to the public. I know it has been stopped because I have been stopped. Um, my husband and I have been robbed. Like I said, we've been betrayed. I've ended up in the hospital near death. I had to leave Ecuador because the doctor said to John and me, we're amazed that this woman is alive in the morning that she's waking up. And I had stayed in the hospital for several days trying to get my heartbeat down, which turned out it wasn't heart disease. It was from the stress of being attacked and my chest got broken, my breasts got broken by somebody there. It was a dreadful experience. And a lot of this is based on trying to shut someone up. It's based on their jealousy, their greed, their ignorance. Um, and I don't know whether they're paid off or they're mind controlled or they just have some vested interest. There's some vested interest in shutting truth tellers up. For those who are listening or, or watching, I want to be able for them to connect the dots and, and go back, first of all, so that people understand why is it that you and your husband have been threatened so much? What did, what did you see? What did Von Braun tell you and showed you that is so important that the powers that be or the powers that want to be don't want you to talk about? Well, I think John being an actor, they certainly don't want an actor-celebrity kind of viewpoint. And John's not a huge actor. He's not a Robert Redford famous, but he's got a huge following of people from Hill Street Blues or Major Dad, a lot of people from Broadway. He's done hundreds of guest-starring roles. And they just don't want the, the people who have vested interests from very easy ones like their jobs, they don't want to lose their job positions, to a vested interest of their trying to sell their book or tape. I mean, it can be just a normal person that participates in these kind of hate actions or and they're jealous because they want to be a star and they think you're try distracting attention from them. It can be very simple down to the people level up to the military industrial lab university, intelligence community, <clears throat> NASA and other space industries, government governments, inexorably linked complex, anybody within that structure that has a vested interest either in, again, their jobs, the profits that they have to bring for home to put their kids through college, or that they have to bring into their company in order to keep their jobs and look good, <clears throat> pardon me, to the fear factor, which I found a lot of in the military industrial complex. Oh, They're, they're coming to get us, the Iraqis, the, uh, which is now. Mm -hmm. When I started, it was the Russians. Right. And it caused me to go to Russia by myself, the first woman to get off a plane by myself there, I understand, because I wanted to find out why they wanted to be the dirty communists. And then, you know, then I found out that 1% of them were KGB communists. It was nothing that what we were taught. They thought we were all cowboys. When you start to go to these countries like I did, you realize that this is really a war game going on and it's based on this very good question you asked why is that happening why are people like us being shut up in my case I was the first woman executive in an aerospace industry Edgar Mitchell and I wrote a book together we very stupidly called it when foxes guard the hen house which means we're going to tell the truth about the strategic defense initiative and how what the lies are about that how it got developed These people are telling lies to us and they don't want the truth to get out in this complex 
it's based on lies. Weapons of mass destruction, did they find any? No. You'll still hear a few people say, yes, they found them, they were secret. But the people who are smart find out it's a lie. 9-11, <clears throat> the people that know about that know that was a lie. I mean, all you have to do is say, Building 7. I mean, if you can't figure out that this was staged, you know, you're, you bought into the lies, the system that exists that's in the old paradigm. So I believe that the real reason it's ha- coming to the point that people like me are shut up, uh, some people have been murdered for trying to tell the truth. We have lists of people, and you must have them, that come out as whistleblowers. And first, there's kind of a formula that I picked up on. First, they give you some sort of warning. Then, if you don't shut up, they threaten you. You can go to jail. You're subverted or destroyed. Yes. You're, or the third thing is you're literally destroyed. You can be killed. And I was almost killed. So what is it that I have a value? I don't think it's that much. It's just a simple truth. We have an opportunity to transform the entire war machine into a space machine, the entire war industry into a space industry, but without the mandate to weaponize space. To me, that is so non-threatening, but I don't think they get it yet, because I'm saying there's a role for the military in space. I'm not opposed to the military in space. The militarization of space has already happened, but there aren't weapons. And if there are, they can still be banned by this treaty, by the way. It's another whole story. But the fact of the matter is they don't want to transform this industry. There are big bucks involved in this. Are we talking about Reagan's Star Wars? Yes. Well, he introduced it. And uh, General Daniel Graham introduced it to him. And I was on a road tour debate with General Graham. So I can tell you every single reason why space-based weapons are a dumb, dangerous, destabilizing, too costly, untestable, unworkable idea, and undesirable, and what the alternatives are. Because that was our debate. But he would come up with comments, and this is an example, it's confrontational, but he would say to me, well, Carol, the difference between us is you think nuclear bombs are bad. And he'd put his hands on his hips. And he'd say, if you could walk 4.2 miles from the site of a nuclear blast, you could be safe if you hide behind a lilac bush. What? I mean, there's no logic to this. And I still write to some friends of mine that are in the Ballistic Missile Defense Organization, and they cannot grasp that we could live in peace. It is impossible for a certain low-level brain that's brilliant in some areas, but low-level consciousness person who functions at a very low frequency, the way I put it, that they cannot grasp the thought that the Chinese are not the enemy. They, they could even go to China and hug some people. They'd still come back thinking they didn't trust them. It's a mindset. It's a warp in the human species in some people. Other people are just the opposite, maybe the opposite extreme even. They love everybody. I've kind of, from the betrayals and the hits on me, lately I've changed. I do love people, but I am, I've learned, if I only learn two words in Ecuador, it's called discernment and due diligence. And I am no longer all-inclusive. Um, some people that I thought were my friends are not my friends. They've proven it. And my father, before the Buddhist vegetarian father I had, who committed suicide when I was in my 20s, and he was a humanitarian giving out Christmas baskets 
to the poor and rented the first houses to black people in sophisticated white neighborhoods. My father used to, I asked him when I was in ninth grade, what's a quote that I could put in the yearbook? Everybody's writing good luck in the future, and I wanted something more meaningful. And he's even in ninth grade. And he said, to have a friend be one. And I think that's what's missing on this planet. There are too many, to answer your question, vested interests, self or corporate or fear-based, especially in the military. And there are, along with that, too many lies. We live under a huge canopy of lies behind a huge veil of secrecy. And it's starting now to open. People are starting to become more transparent because, as I said to a CIA audience I had one time, which made people think I worked for the CIA, but they actually hire people that are working as in different movements that are be heads of movements or are willing to come in and tell them what's going on. Of course, they may twist it and manipulate it, but at least you have a chance to go in and educate them about a viewpoint. And the title of my talk was, You Can't Keep Secrets Anymore. And I showed them how you can't keep secrets anymore. So I think the reason that people are um, threatened, ridiculed, discredited, first you're discredited, that's the whole thing at the beginning. And people get paid off to discredit you, or they buy into it because they like to get rid of you because you're distracting from whatever it is they're doing or their vested interests. That's the first thing that happens. Or, like I said, they get everything taken away from them, and that happened to John and me. We had a house, a farm, with a crop circle on it that we were this giving to the old people. This was in Ecuador, or this did was it in Ecuador. somewhere in the United States also? Well, it happened a little bit in the United States, too. When I went to Vienna, Austria, two big men came and said, you cannot talk about the MX missile here. And I called a reporter from CNN who came to Vienna, Austria, and I went public with this story because I had called Danny Sheehan, the lawyer, and he said, go public, that's the safest thing you can do. Right. So, but Ecuador was the worst experience of my life because we thought we had gone there and we were living in paradise. We built, uh, we renovated a whole hotel and built a conference center that wasn't even there. This is 2008? Uh, yeah. Okay. And that's when we left there. We had been there for four years, and we really worked hard, hard to develop this area. I was coordinator of the famous old people there, and everything fell apart. We and started you a hotel get, called Madre Tierra? Yes, okay. yes, and it was beautiful. It was paradise. And then people came in and just ripped us off in every direction. I don't even know how it all happened. It was Why, such a nightmare. Before you tell me that, what, what was the, the, the event that draw, was drawing you to Ecuador? Uh, first of all, I think we bought into the United States is going down. It's a terrible country. You can't get anything done here. And then we started hearing advertisements. We bought into the PR campaign. It's cheaper, better paradise here. And those ads are out everywhere for everywhere in the world. And then the Americans escape, and they go move to these places and destroy them. That's what happens. We become infiltrators. And these quaint little towns, we say, oh, well, you need washing machines. you know. So we start bringing in our Humvees or whatever we bring in. And we start exporting their goods so that they start becoming more of an economy, capitalistic-based place where before they were self-sustained, living off their gardens, having their dances and music and living happily, but they were starting to think in those places that it was better because they now get direct TV, 
they want to be like what it is in America. They don't get what happened to us in America that caused us Americans to move out and go to these quaint little places and then bring our, our dishwashers and cut off mountaintops and reroute their rivers and tear down their forests to build these eco villages, sustainable villages, retreat centers. We're going to come in and gather all the intelligent people. What? We have changed those places, and I participated in that, and I'm really, really sorry I did it because I watched people all over the world doing it. I thought it was a good thing, too. I don't think we realize how we change these places, and it's not for the better. So what happened? You and your husband moved down there. You bought a hotel. Yeah, and one developer moved in. He didn't like the fact that we would say you shouldn't be cutting off a mountaintop, rerouting a river, and building a bunch of houses when you told us you were going to build one and save that land. Then there was 11, then 48, then 200. And uh, in Ecuador, in these different countries, too, the laws are very different. In some places, you can't call someone a name. That's a lifetime prison sentence. In some places, they don't have juries. They just have a judge and a lawyer who are getting paid off. You bring in six witnesses, and you could bring them off the street and pay, tell them they're going to get money when you get paid off. And they could be a drunk on the street. It, this happened to us. One couple sued us, and we didn't even know, and said they worked for us for 18 years, and we didn't pay them at Christmas. And I mean, anything can happen to you in these places, and especially if you look like you have money, which we looked like because we bought a hotel and a house with three guest houses. We were renovating. I mean, we had saved up our money, and we were pretty well off, and that, that was just not a good thing to be there. And so we were very much taken advantage of, and then on top of it, I'm working, and the word was out. We made the stupid mistake, too, of telling some American friends there what I was doing, working on uh, getting a treaty signed there, and we were very close to it. When Ecuador got infiltrated, which had nothing to do with me or our work or the space issue, by the CIA, and this was very public, Um, Correa's office got, the president of Ecuador's office got infiltrated. There was a border war in Colombia. It's a whole story. And he ended up firing his minister of defense, who was assigned to work with me to get the world leaders to come in to sign the treaty, and some of his top military guys. You know, there's a lot of money involved in all this. The stakes are very high, and some people are poor, and they see dollar signs, and they will sue you. They will betray their president. They will do anything. They'll say and do anything. And other people are just trying to sell their themselves, you know, sell their books and tapes and how wonderful I am doing do good on the planet. I mean, there's such a wide range of why people would hurt good people and make up stories about them. And um, I don't know, we, we ended up having to leave because I had a heart condition that almost killed me, and I had been punched in the chest, and I was not willing to go through surgery in Ecuador and the doctor there said you need to get her out of here. That's how I ended up coming back to, actually I went to Canada first and then I came to the States and whatever the problems are here, for me this is the best place to be and forever, wherever any of us are should be the best place that we are rather than invade these other places I've learned and go visit and help people but stay where you are and help what's going on in your area. I mean, we have tremendous problems in the United States. I wish I had stayed here to focus on it more. Um, But I bought into the advertisements like we do. You know, these are professional salespeople that sell us everything from pills. People buy pills that they see advertised on television, even though it says this, this could make you have chronic headaches, 
internal bleeding, become suicidal. Um, if you die, you know, I mean, go blind. These symptoms are longer than the, the ads. Ninety percent of the commercial is all about the side effects, which it would include death, but still people exactly proceed and take them. Exactly, and people proceed to take them. Right. It's unbelievable. And I eat sugar, and I'm trying to get off of sugar, which is a poison. Although, if you eat raw natural sugar, like the old people do, they're living to be 130. Actually, they're all dying off now because of the pollution and the stress that's been brought into them. It's not the lifestyle that they used to have, and their children are dying, by the way, before they are, as one of, not the old, not one, many of the old people. I knew 450 of them, and they're not there now, most of them. Um, their children are eating, the way they put it to me is they're eating a different kind of sugar and Cokes and chips, and we never did that. Whatever they ate was organic. And what kept them alive the, uh, the longest? Music. And how did they stay healthy? They bathed in the pure water, which now they can't bathe in anymore, where I was. I mean, I, I would cry listening to the old people's stories as people started moving in to this paradise where, you know, they're growing gardens and raw food. And it's just a bunch of BS, really. It's a sad story of what's happening around the world. And so I think it's more important than ever for people to speak out in shows like yours and tell the truth. Maybe yours is the only one. Actually, the only other news show I watch is um, Democracy Now!, Amy Goodman's show, and which people can watch on the Internet, too, democracynow.org, but she's on 900 stations now, and you will be too. Absolutely, and uh, we're getting ready to end the first segment and the tape, and uh, just a quick story before the tape ends. Recently, we, we deal with every single topic. We interviewed Dr. Betty Martini, I don't know if you know who she is, but uh, she talks about the poisons of, poisons of aspartame. Michael oh. J. Fox was diagnosed with Parkinson's at the age of 30. He was the spokesperson for Pepsi. He kept it quiet for seven years, and then he said, I have Parkinson's. And the truth is, it was because of the aspartame. But her mother died of breast cancer. Oh. 25 years to the day, her mother died. She was diagnosed with breast cancer. She decided not to proceed with the usual chemotherapy and all the, the uh, uh, treatments, and she found some herbs that cured her completely, 100%. What happened to the farmers who were growing that herb, those herbs? They were threatened, the, uh, the crops were burned, and now the herbs are illegal. So once we, once we come back from the intermission, I'd like to talk to you about more of Ecuador, what happened to you, and more of what Dr. Werner von Braun said to you, which is so important. Thank you, and I'd like to tell you more about the treaty and how that works, because I think it's a solution to get us out of this mess. Absolutely. We'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're watching or listening to The Veritas Show. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy.
This is the Karai Sitching, and you are listening to a wonderful radio interview conducted by Mel. Mm-hmm. 